Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for episode 214, where we are going to review Stella's GX Sciences Genetics SNP panel and talk all things genetics, impact of genetic mutation and epigenetics, as well as considerations for vaccines and other lifestyle choices. Yes, this episode is definitely long overdue, and we have covered my perspective on vaccines in various grab bag episodes. In fact, the Q&A from episode 176, we touched on the topic as a devoted answer, and we've laid the groundwork for the foundation of genetics in episode 69 when I talked about the concept of MTHFR and methylation. And in episode 70 of the Naturally Nourished podcast, we had Dr. Ben Lynch on talking about dirty genes. And I think we should also include, of course, Becky, Dr. Christian Northrup's episode where she talked about the health scare system versus the health care system. And that was in the higher 100s. So we'll be sure to put that number in our show notes. Yes, semi-recently, it feels like, sort of. <laughs> yes. So as we go into today's episode, um, I do have a quick ask for all of you listeners. If you have not stopped and reviewed the Naturally Nourished podcast and you are an avid listener or a new listener that's loving what you're hearing, please go on over to iTunes, Google Play, wherever it is that you are listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. iTunes is generally the biggest platform, and that's where we have our five-star review status going on right now. But we do ask that you do leave us a review, especially today when we stick our necks out there on the line. Um, You know, every now and then there are people that are really focused in the narrative and get really their feathers in a ruffle and start calling us anti-vaxxers and you know hate mail and all the things and we've received one bad review on our masking perspective so you know to offset that and if you do appreciate our courage in sharing medical facts and critical thinking and really fighting against the groupthink narrative, uh, please go on over and leave us a five-star review with a couple sentences of why you love what we're putting out there as free thinkers. Yeah, I'm shocked it was only one. I know, actually. One bad review, so um, that speaks well to our listeners. And well, thank you guys for being open-minded. And throughout <laughs> this season, anytime uh, you know there have been some lists and things, and I'm, I'm generally in good camaraderie anytime I'm put in a category with you know Kelly Brogan or Christian Northrup or some of these people, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm down. I, I think that that's appropriate. Yep, Ben Lynch <laughs> has been on that list. and Yes, so... <laughs> So it goes. All right. So before we get into the meat of today's episode, let's just take a second to talk about wild foods. 
Yes. Wild Foods is a company that puts quality, sustainability, and health first in all of their products. They believe, like we do, that real food is medicine, and they ensure that every product that they carry is sourced from small farms around the globe, and they take the mission seriously to broke, to fix, excuse me, the broken food system. And so by doing so and supporting small-scale farmers, quality sourcing, we're really getting the most nutrient-dense products. And this extends from their wild cacao butter wafers to their cacao powder to the medicinal mushroom blends and the teas, the ground turmeric powder, vanilla bean, and so much more. Wild Foods has our favorite matcha on the market right now. It's a fantastic bright green fine powder, and it's that ceremonial grade matcha. So you're getting a super potent dose of L-theanine to mellow out your alpha brain waves, also aiding in the immune support that we get from consuming tea. We know that we get a lot of interferon boost and a lot of support with our innate immune system response. Um, So if you are a tea drinker or someone that uses whole foods in your pantry, which I know all you listeners do, definitely go on over and check out wildfoods.co, that's .co, not .com. Put in the code AllieMillerRD at checkout and you will get 12% off your first order. And if I am to recommend something in the world of brain enhancement and nootropics, which is basically cognitive enhancers and stress regulators, we are so obsessed with their Cocotropic Wild Superfood Elixir. This is a blend of reishi and chaga, which are mushroom extracts, as well as raw maca and wild turmeric and cacao powder, all blended together to support cognitive enhancement, as well as mood improvement and relaxation. And we have had so much fun mixing that into any recipe really that calls for cacao, but getting that added brain boost. So go on over to wildfoods.co, use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout, and let them know that you heard about them through the Naturally Nourished podcast. So, so good. All right. So let's talk a bit about just laying foundation of what genes are and why a person might want to look into genetic testing. So just starting with what are genes, what is epigenetics? Yes. So again, we deep dive this concept of epigenetics on episode 69, way back uh, before the hundreds. So I guess it's time for a little reset. Uh, Epigenetics essentially is the study of the changes in our gene expression, either up or down regulating the expression of the gene without changing the underlying DNA sequence. And so this is a change in phenotype without a change in the genotype. And that's going to influence how the cells read the genes. So this change in phenotype can be influenced based on our age, based on our environment, based on our stress levels or the pace of our lifestyle, our disease state, our inflammatory and metabolic health, our microbiome, our exposure to toxins, our nutritional status, and so much more. And so we kind of look at the roadmap of our genes, you know, these 23 paired chromosomes. So 23 from mom, 23 from dad. 
and that makes up our genotype. And this is kind of a roadmap of opportunity, but your lifestyle, nutrition, and environment in this concept of epigenetics will influence the expression of either a, a more, again, upregulated or expressed or downregulated and suppressed. And that's really what creates the action on the roadmap, if you will. I love that visual of a roadmap and kind of that choose your own adventure, you know, based on what you layer on. Yes. So, you know, looking into genetics can give you an area of focus of where you may be predisposed to having some Achilles heels, if you will, right? Or you might notice in an individual that they have hindered detoxification pathways. Then that individual can take particular lifestyle approaches, not exposing themselves to toxins, choosing organic produce where possible, not drinking excessive amounts of alcohol, XYZ, right? And and also supporting glutathione or particular nutrients of focus of those detox pathways that are hindered. And so we're really looking at this connection of the nutritional and lifestyle influence on the said roadmap or opportunity. And this is really an empowering finding um, in a relatively new area of medical research. We've certainly heard about it in psychiatry in terms of doing some genetic testing to kind of see what meds might work best for someone. Um, but really, you know, looking deeper into disease state and symptoms that are influenced by the epigenome is really cool. Um, and everything really comes back to metabolic expression. So let's talk about just some of the key symptoms and disease trends that we can see here. Yes. So when we're talking about, let's just break down MTHFR to, to reset the roadmap so you can understand one targeted, well understood genetic SNP. And I don't think I've defined that uh, acronym yet. So a genetic SNP is a single nucleotide polymorphism. Hang with us, guys. <laughs> this one might Hang get kind of nerdy this episode. All the beeple bopple. <laughs> don't worry. It's getting tangible. Um, so, you know, when we're looking at a genetic report, we're looking at identifying SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms. And these are also, some people would call them a genetic mutation. Ben Lynch would call this a dirty gene, if you will. Okay. And so when we're looking at SNPs, the kind of most popular or known or acknowledged in the medical world is the MTHFR. And MTHFR looks at methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme pathway. And so for individuals that have a genetic SNP on the MTHFR pathway, they are going to have hindered methylation function. And so methylation is an important process of building and excreting. So when we have hindered, hindered metabolic pathways in methylation, we could have higher toxicity. We could also have higher levels of homocysteine when looking at cardiovascular concerns. So this could lead to higher susceptibility to heart disease, elevated blood pressure, like hypertension, as well as clotting factor. If someone has an MTHFR SNP, we can see influence with cancer or neurological conditions due to the toxicity impact. And also we know that we require active and high amounts of folate for neurotransmitter development. So we can see lower levels of serotonin, for instance, in someone that has MTHFR. And this can lead to mood and cognitive impact. So we can see depression, anxiety, ADHD, autism, insomnia, irritability for individuals that have MTHFR. And this can even influence in that methylation pathway how someone would regulate their metabolism. So we can see blood sugar issues 
more cravings, more uh, tendencies towards weight gain. And then even on the hormonal world, we'll talk about another gene pathway, COMT, which I've kind of talked about a little bit. We're going to get way into genes today. Um, but even methylation already with that buildup or excretion, we can start to see estrogen dominance. So we can see more tendencies towards PMDD or uh, PMS. Uh, we can see infertility. We can see difficulty in transition with menopause, higher susceptibility to miscarriage because the egg development may be uh, less optimized with an individual that has MTHFR. So of course, when we think of like neural tube development and fetal development, this is really what started to acknowledge these SNPs, the world of prenatals and the importance of supplementing with folate. And um, again, we talked about in episode 69, the variance of, again, and we've talked about in many episodes now with Becky's pregnancies, the difference of that folic acid. If you see that IC, folic acid is the synthetic form. And we've seen come to light the MTHFR gene expression because individuals with MTHFR cannot use folic acid that actually builds up in their body. They need the methylated form of folate to help to turn that squeaky wheel of that genetic SNP pathway. And then beyond just disease state, there are a lot of other symptoms that we can see influenced by genes. So let's just dig into a few of those maybe. Sure. I mean, so even again, let's just staying in the world of MTHFR, this can impact, like I said, you know, mood, which may not be to the level of depression or anxiety diagnosis or medication need, but it could impact um, more obsessive compulsive nature, or it could impact quality of sleep. Um, it could impact brain fog. We can even see some structural influences in the vascular world. So maybe more tendencies towards nosebleeds, um, towards hives, rashes, itchier skin. There's of course other genes like DAO that regulate histamine more specifically, but there can still be that buildup if methylation is hindered. Um, and even in the digestive world, we can see more tendencies towards reflux, IBS, chronic constipation. Um, and so it, it can really be widespread and even including the buildup of inflammatory compounds in the body, which would then drive like aching joints all the way even up through the hormonal imbalances and expressions in acne. Okay. So a lot of different symptoms that we could be experiencing that, you know, we have no idea have to do with our genes. Right. You know, and the big picture here is that testing allows us to understand the potential so that we can be proactive in areas of concern. So this means that we can limit exposure to stressors and toxins or stressors along those pathways, as well as supporting the biological demand with targeted nutrients, food as medicine and supplement support. Totally. So if we understand our potential weaknesses, we're that much more empowered with decisions that we make every day. Absolutely. Um, yes. And I know for me as a new mama, um, testing is a way for me to validate Noah's delayed or maybe no vaccine plan, depending on how his genes come back. Um, so we have our GX Sciences panel sitting on the coffee table that I need to <laughs> get out this week. Um, but what would be a reason to do a panel or do some genetic testing? Yeah. So uh, again, to understand your weak points. So for optimal health, as a functional medicine practitioner, I very 
very rarely lead with genes because I'm generally going to enter into what is the biggest expression going on now, you know, so I'm likely going to lead with a salivary hormone cortisol, you know, panel like through Labrix where I look at also neurotransmitters and I look at all the sex hormones and adrenal impact with someone who's super fight or flight, stress responding, anxiety, or dealing with infertility or whatnot, right? I'm going to lead there. Or someone that's really burned out and dealing with a new diagnosis, I might start with a micronutrient test to really see the downstream of the expression of these genes you know so that's where we would see on the cortisol or that's where we would see on the potential deficiency of zinc or biotin um, same with stool you know stool would be more of a snapshot of what's going on right now if this individual is battling a parasite you know yes maybe their FUT2 gene is snipped and that does create a susceptibility to microbiome imbalance but at this juncture I want to see what's going on in that client's gut so to be clear, as a functional medicine practitioner, I very very rarely lead with genes. Genes are something that I do once that patient has been brought back to a more remissive state or we've moved at least 80% of their you know, treatment protocol and now we wanna better understand the tendencies. Now with children, I may start with a GX science panel. And so that's really the population, especially asymptomatic children that aren't dealing with chronic illness. If I'm seeing a kiddo who is just recently diagnosed with Crohn's ulcerative colitis and has you know blood in his stool and calprotectin's off the chart, I'm running a stool test and an MRT test on that individual. But if I'm dealing with a new um, child and the mom wants uh, support in her delayed vaccination plan, I'm always going to start GX Sciences. If I have a healthy four-year-old like my daughter Stella, who's had no known medical complications, I'm going to dig a little deeper into her GX science panel. And so we initially did with Stells the four gene test by Genova Diagnostics. Uh, and, you know, that looked at GST1, it looked at MTRR, MTHFR, and I'm, I'm forgetting, I think it was COMT. I believe that those are the four genes that were looked at in that panel. Um, but I knew that the last time I had assessed that was, I believe she was a age one or younger, she was a baby. Um, and so I was using that with my pediatrician to see when we would consider vaccines. And I'll kind of sidebar that because I wanna kind of at the end of today's episode talk specifically about considerations, delays, uh, ways, ways to support the, po- the body if, if dealing with a mandated vaccine and et cetera. But I knew that for my daughter, I wanted information on for sure methylation and detoxification before I would make a um, educated decision about her vaccination plan. And so we knew for Stella right away that those were two hindered pathways. And I knew with everything with the bad season and mask mandates and et cetera, that I wanted documentation for my child that was uh, more timely and also that was more comprehensive. So we did this uh deep dive 55 SNP panel through GX Science and I will link it in the show notes and we do have it on the Naturally Nourished RD website. If you did want to order this for your child, it is a buccal swab, um, which basically means a cheek swab. And so it is like a cotton looking, um, almost Q-tip looking piece of cotton that you would rub inside your child's uh, gum and cheek, uh, both sides for I believe 60 to 90 seconds. And um, really provide so it's very you know non-invasive does not provide any pain for the child and a really comprehensive way for you to feel armed to understand your child's risk factors all right so let's walk through obviously stella's genes didn't change um from the one year it was just getting a more comprehensive overview of some additional 
genetic factors. Uh, but let's go ahead and walk through her results and maybe highlight eight to 10 genes of focus for listeners to understand how you can use this information to apply shifts in lifestyle supplements and diet and kind of what you're doing with this information. Yeah. And so first and foremost, when you're getting your report, you're going to get color coded, color coded results. And a couple things to say about the report. Um, I think that there are some good recommendations in the therapeutic section, uh, but the report is computer generated, mind you. So there might be a recommendation that works for one gene pathway that might contraindicate due to another genetic pathway. So I really do advise if you are going to order this, make sure you do so with a functional medicine practitioner. If you do order it through the Naturally Nourished website, uh, then you do get an email review with Becky or, or myself. So we would look at that as a big picture. So first and foremost, don't just do every therapeutic application without speaking mm -hmm. to a functional medicine practitioner to put the whole piece together. Um, and then when you're looking at your report, there will be color coding. So there will be green and two negative signs. If there's no clinical abnormality, which basically means that the gene is clean or the gene is optimized, you will have a yellow scoring with a plus and a minus minus sign for a heterozygous result. This means that either mom or dad gave you a SNP and the other gene is fully functioning. So one pair is mutated, the other is not. And then you'll have a red if you have a homozygous result, which would mean that both mom and dad gave you a SNP or a genetic mutation. So obviously the homozygous or red results are the more severe or the more deeper considerations in both the input output as far as lifestyle and supplement support. Yeah, you just want to give that, that groundwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's really good. Um, it's like a, a standard light switch, right? Where there's two light switches right next to each other. And if we're, you know, uh, homozygous, both light switches, one is on and one is off. If you're hetero, hetero you're going to have either both on or both off. The other way. Hetero would have Thank one you. on, one off. Thank you. Homo would have both. Homo two <laughs> of the Mom same. Mom brain. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> but yes. The yes. visual still applies. Yes. The vi <laughs> inversed. Yeah. Inversed. Yes. But right. So so homozygous will be the, the red, both copies snipped. And, and so in those individuals, we really have to consider what that gene does and you know really consider support so basically i knew stella was mthfr c677t homozygous so both brady and i gave her a snip on that uh, methylation pathway and that is concerning because there is also an a copy the a1298c copy which stella is completely you know, no SNP on, but that C677T is 60 to 70% of the methylation function. So the fact that she is homozygous for that more dominant gene copy means that she's likely only methylating at about 30% capacity. But thank God she has the MTHFR A copy completely intact. Otherwise she'd be extremely more susceptible to those conditions I just mentioned. So we did know that she was MTHFR C677T and truly that that on itself is enough to place hesitation in vac vaccination um, because methylation, again, is a excretion pathway. So when we're talking about adjuvants or preservatives or metals added into these vaccines as part of the mechanism of getting the immune system to go into shock and respond, that can drive some serious concerns for a child, especially at low weight um, and et cetera. So it's also important to note 
within this MTHFR pathway that you don't just want to give, you know, one impact of the nutrient. It's not like a one plus two equals three where it's like, oh, well, her MTHFR is off. So we're just going to give her a ton of methylfolate and then she'll be back to hundred percent status because too much methylfolate can actually drive hyperactivity. Um, and you need to look at the other folate receptor genes. So for instance, there's also FOLR1. And if this is a SNP that is mutated, then the individual would do well with a folinic acid. Um, Stella was completely no clinical abnormality for the FOLR1. So we're focusing predominantly with her taking that methyl tetrahydrofolate, um, five methyl tetrahydrofolate form, which is in the kids um, avail multi or multi avail kids chew. And we're not adding any methylfolate because Stella also gets in a lot of leafy greens, which provide her the nature form of folate. And she does incorporate organs like twice into her diet when we're doing that in burger patties and ancestral blends. And you're going to get the most folate from liver. Um, so Stella right now just takes in the 1,020 milligrams of the 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate that's in two chews of the kids avail. And that right now seems to be keeping things regulated. I believe if I added, you know, another, um, so that is like 1.02 milligrams, if you will, excuse me, grams, 1.02 grams. Um, and you know, some people will go like, like Deplin is a 10 mm -hmm. gram methylfolate, um, you know, medication. And so if I gave her even an extra five grams, she could totally go into hyperactivity mode. And then we'd be trying to add something else to mellow her back out. Yeah, more is not always more right? <laughs> when it comes to genetics. And there's so many complex layering effects, like you said, as well. Yes. So um, we looked ahead, you know, Stella is negative for the COMT1 gene, which is important because that would make her more susceptible to hyperactivity with excessive methylfolate. Um, COMT stands for the catecholamine methyl S transferase, which plays a big role with the stress chemicals. And again, if you overmethylate, then that kind of turns one wheel to build up a dam, if you will, of the fight or flight response. And often we'll see when we're looking at like a Labrix panel, um, we see an imbalance of the norepinephrine and epinephrine. So basically the uh, fight or flight responders of the adrenals, but the regulation of that active adrenaline and the noradrenaline or the regulation there. And this can drive people that get really irritable, go into tunnel vision, really have a difficult time pivoting and multitasking. And we need to provide them SAM-E. So SAM-E is a compound that's made in the liver, S-adenosylmethionine, and uh, SAM-E aids in regulating that COMT pathway. It's a different form of methylation than just that methylfolate. Um, so if COMT, that would be an intervention, but again, Stella was negative for that. So we just keep her at a moderate level of methylfolate, which is found in her kids avail. Yes, that COMT is the, it's the genius gene, but it's got such a double-edged sword of um, driving tendency toward even like bipolar and schizophrenia, um, depending on, you know, what your setup looks like in, on your COMT. Um, moving on to MTRR and B12, I noticed that Stella is heterozygous for MTRRA664A and then MTRRA66G, she's homozygous. So let's talk about B12. Right, so both of the methylation genes in the B12 world, she's also mutated for. And so we knew one of these, uh, we knew the more dominant one from her initial panel, which again, plays another role of methylation. So um, I, I wanna for a moment talk about high B12 in the serum in this 
conversation because I keep seeing patients that are like, oh, my GP told me my B12 was high. Uh, just running B12 through LabCorp or Quest is looking at the serum or what's floating through the blood. So sometimes individuals that have the MTRR SNP are not able to use the B12, and so they will have higher amounts in their bloodstream. And there's really no known toxicity for B12 as a vitamin. It's water-soluble, um, very low low risk of stress to the liver, um, such as supporter for neurological health. We'll see when, and, and, and we have actually seen in Stella recently, like if she's sitting on the toilet, um, or if she's, um, doing certain things like I'm thinking because her legs are hanging, um, she's getting a little bit of like neuropathy tingling sensation going on that we're starting to, I, I pick up on mm -hmm. as someone that has neurological condition in, in my history. Um, and so we are adding a little bit of a, the a B12 boost, actually. I'm putting the B12 boost in three times a week now. Um, and so that's providing 5,000 micrograms of B12 on top of the six micrograms of B12 that she's getting in the Kids Avail. So the, the Kids Avail um, multi it's what's called, right? Kids Avail Multi. Multi Avail Kids. Multi Avail Kids. Thank you. I'm like, <laughs> I keep naming it weird. It's fine. The Multi Avail Kids um, does provide, I believe, a robust amount of methylfolate. But for the kids that do have the genetic SNP on the B12, that B12 boost might be a very welcomed add in. And I don't believe, like I said, it needs to be daily. It, they're really tiny. You could try to cut them in half, but we're just doing it three times a week. Um, and that has been helpful as far as her feedback on the neurological tingling. Um, and if you were looking for a blood assessment, you'd want to order an MMA. You actually want to look at the methylmalonic acid to really see where B12 status is. Because we can actually see people in a CBC when we see the MCV and MCHC to be too high, um, that these are going to be indicacies of B12 deficiency. Um, and this individual could still have a high B12 serum again. So that has nothing to do with the actual true B12 status, which you'd want to order an MMA. I think that's such a good point, and I can't tell you how many times I have clients who are like, oh, my you know, GP is really worried about my high B12, and I'm like, well, you're taking our multi-common clear, and you're adding in our B-complex, um, and there's no reason to be worried about a high B12. There's no upper limit, like you said, and you really can't overdo it. And I have seen, have you seen, Becky, people that have you know, the B12 and the 2000s mm -hmm. plus, which shows as high, but then they still have mm -hmm. the macrocytic anemia. Yep. Yep. Um, actually, that showed up on my most recent CBC, so I'm adding B12 on as well. <laughs> there you go. I was looking for, um, you know, standard um, iron deficiency anemia, but found that instead. Yeah, and, and for Stella, just to be clear, you know, there is a whole world of B12 just like with folate. Um, so there's a GIF gene, there's a T. TCN gene, and those would be more where you would consider like the adenosyl hydroxy, but Stella was only snipped on the methyl B12 pathways. So that's why we're only working with that B12 boost. And the majority, I will say, of expression, just like MTHFR with folate, is based on that methylation component. And that's why the B12 boost is in that methylated form. Okay. And then although she was negative in COMT, when we look at some of the other mood influencers, she did have a heterozygous MAO. 
um, as well as a homozygous GAD1. So let's talk about what that can mean just in terms of mood and behavioral stuff. Yeah. So as you go into the second page of the report, we're moving past methylation, we're moving past folate and B12 status, and we're looking at some of the mood regulators. So like I said, she was negative for that catecholamine um, COMT gene, which is really helpful for us in the sense of uh, temper tantrums and mood regulation. Um, we are looking at uh, a heterozygous, meaning again, one SNP on the MOAA, which is the serotonin pathway, and one SNP on the MAOB, which is the dopamine. And honestly, those kind of balance each other out. Um, it would be, uh, it's actually superior to have one heterozygous on both of these copies than homozygous on one and no SNP on the other. This is because excessive levels of dopamine can drive um, more OCD tendencies. We can also see um, paranoia um, or lack of trust in individuals. Um, and then we can see if serotonin was overly expressed, but dopamine was low, um, you know, lack of bliss and sensation. And so it, it is reasonable to have both as, as a heterozygous. Um, we do look to inositol as a huge regulator for this pathway. We also look at riboflavin, um, and there is more than ample riboflavin in the, um, multi-avail kids. So she's all set there. And we actually added in about a third scoop of relax and regulate for Stella, I'll talk about a couple other pathways of why, but based on these re these reports, and part of it was for this inositol, which aids to regulate the MAOA and MAOB. Um, we know that inositol can also aid with insomnia, sleep quality, uh, blood sugar metabolism. There's just so many benefits to that. Um, and then we look to choline as a nutrient of focus. There is going to be some of that choline support also in the multivill kids, but we really emphasize egg yolks in the diet here. Um, and so this is where, you know, we really ensure that Stella's getting at least eight eggs, which is a lot for a four-year-old a week. And she does that. We will do two eggs about three times a week during the school week and then once on the weekend. And she even gets a lot of the baked goods in my cookbook and blog, which incorporate like, you know, four to six eggs per recipe. Now, if she was dealing with low moods or anxiety, I'd potentially even layer in a B complex. But at this time, this does not seem concerning for Stella. And then with the GAD1, this is the one that she was homozygous. So both genes were mutated in this pathway. And this does look as far as being cautious with MSG um, because this would create much more excitatory response in the monosodium glutaminate. Um, Stella doesn't do MSG in any of her foods. Right. <laughs> she doesn't really do any. <laughs> the only packaged foods right now is a couple times a week, simple Mills um, crackers or some form of a Siete product, but nothing with even the term like natural flavors or anything unidentified. You'd want to watch out for like all of the um, super flavors. This is like, you know, Doritos. Cheetos, Cheetos, any of those types of things um, that would drive a higher expression of stress on that GAD1 gene. Um, of course, also like Asian food to be mindful of. Um, and when we look at supporting this pathway, we also look at glycine as regulating. And so glycine also is going to be in that third scoop of that relax and regulate. So we have the inositol component for the MAO, MAB the magnesium bisglycinate component to aid with that GABA, and that should also support with um, the melatonin regulation. 
And so that's where that relax and regulate will come in to support this kind of mood area and also depth and quality of sleep and release. Um, we have given, as I've talked about in past episodes, GABA, GABA Calm to Stella. Last, though, was on, on her birthday party in June, and I'm talking to you now in November. So that's not a frequent flyer for her. Um, she's pretty good at processing. You know, she has her mood jags like anyone, but we talk through them and doesn't seem to be experiencing a lot of anxiety or stress response. Um, so we just use GABA Calm for like if we're flying or some of these like big, maybe maybe three to four times a year. Some children with this type of expression would need much more support and that could be appropriate, you know, every day in their school lunch. Um, and the last thing on the GAD pathway that I want to mention that we incorporate is um, sulforaphane. So there's a lot of research that looks at the sulforaphane and the influence of uh, broccoli in the diet to actually aid with regulating the GAD expression. And honestly, Stella does get broccoli probably three to four times a week (laughs) um, and is really good at consuming her cruciferous vegetables. So that really hasn't been a concern overall. So, you know, collectively, these genes do put her at a higher risk for anxiety and depression. Again, the negative for the COMT helps with this. I think us providing her the methylfolate in the kids' um, multi that we're doing and adding in that B12 aid. But with lifestyle support as well, we want to start to be provigilant and um, forward thinking about how to support a grounded, mellow, happy mood. So practicing gratitude and prayer, practicing mantras. Again, this is where you can start to pick up the lifestyle element of, oh, I can see that this could be an area where my child would have more need. And these are life style ways that we can start to be pro-vigilant about preventing anxiety in the forefront. Let's talk for one second about the uh, little bit of mantra work, or I guess uh, you guys are calling them affirmations, like what she does every morning. I just think it's so cool. Yeah. So every day before school, um, and, and on weekends as well, they just happen a little later, <laughs> but um, every day she sets three intentions. And, um, you know, it will be like, I am calm, I am peaceful, I am sweet. Those are the ones that she really likes to use. Or uh, sometimes she'll be kind of silly with them and say like, I am speedy, I am strong, I am silly. Um, And then, you know, we'll kind of talk about throughout that day um, after school, when Brady or I pick her up, we'll say like, Hey, how did it go being calm today? Tell me an example of when in your day you chose calmness or how did it go being silly? What was the silliest part of your day? And so we kind of reaffirm her affirmations of what she's committing to being in that day. And we help to empower her to live that out and to recognize and acknowledge when she does so, so that she really can understand that her intention of her day can be manifested. And um, we're also now starting to come together as a family as like an evening ritual. We used to rotate bedtime and we're trying to kind of seal the day in more of a gratitude prayer of thinking of, you know, our favorite memories um, and uh, just putting together ways of of manifesting joy when there's, we're, we're probably going into another coming season of uncertainty. And I think it's really important for our kids to feel as we've discussed in past episodes, safe. Um, that that's the biggest job of a parent is ensuring that your child feels safe, secure, and loved. I love that. And I think so many of us beyond children could benefit from those practices. Yes. <laughs> um, and then when we look at her mitochondrial expression, all of that looked great. So no homozygous genes, just hetero on N D U F. S8. 
<laughs> um, Which is the NADH, ubiquinone, uh-huh. yep, CoQ10 okay. influencing factor. Mm-hmm. Got it. Mm-hmm. And then UQCRC, I feel like I'm reading license plates, <laughs> two, um, COX-5A and ATP-5C1. Right. I mean, yeah, so basically, yeah, beep boop bop boop. <laughs> These are all energy manufacturing pathways. Yeah. Some have a little bit of influence with uh, expression of inflammation, but there's actually a separate part of the report that mo- goes more deep dive inflammation. Um, so this is really a lot of mitochondrial work. If a child was dealing, or an adult, of course, was dealing with chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, if we're looking at like lupus, if we're looking at autoimmune diseases that influence catabolism or breakdown, like multiple sclerosis, uh, fibromyalgia, this would be a really bigger area of intervention, especially if there were genetic mutations. Um, in this pathway, and what's kind of interesting, like just take a pause. So as I got really geeky on the last genes and we were talking about MAOA, MAOB, and the GAD1, and the solution was essentially relax and regulate. I, I mean, I, I'm not laughing it off lightly. I, again, I talk about relax and regulate all the time. And honestly, it did take me to this report to give my child it. <laughs> so I think that there's definitely, again, a, a, a cause to do this and a reasoning to do this. But, but as I'm about to say, you know, the interventions for the mitochondrial areas of concern, CoQ10 and L-carnitine, right? And so again, if experiencing these types of things, like our boost and burn, that is where we have high dose L-carnitine, two grams, you know, per dosage there, um, which drives the ability of the body to produce ketones, right? Um, and so that L-carnitine drives that fatty acid shuttle of metabolism that creates ketone production. And that's why we use that in our keto essentials bundle. Um, but the boost and burn is always used across the board for chronic fatigue as well as a, like an initial intervention. And then the other one we go to is CoQ10, you know? Um, and so we especially are looking at CoQ10 if there's infertility issues that plays a big role with egg health. Um, if there are myalgias, aches, fatigue, um, and then of course, especially any individual individual on a statin drug because that blocks the cytochrome P4 that that's metabolized by the cytochrome P450 enzyme in the liver. It doesn't block it. It's metabolized in that enzyme pathway. And we know that the, um, Statin drugs block the HMG-CoA reductase pathway, and that pathway is where we are going to be making or manufacturing the CoQ10. And so there's that, you know, again, increased need beyond the genetics. So we, we do want to kind of, I guess, consider that we can be preemptive in some of these interventions with targeted nutrition support um, based on the symptoms and feedback, I would say. Got it. And so other than the relax and regulate, not really shifting anything, she's already getting a ton of red meat, which is providing L-carnitine and CoQ10. Um, I'm curious how the magnesium is impacting sleep, if that's helping at all yet. Well, we just, we just have done our second dosage. Yes. But I will say, you know, um, she has been coming in our bedroom since the season and, um, she still is, but now she's coming in our bedroom. It used to be like around midnight and now she's coming in our bedroom around 5am. So I think she's definitely getting another cycle of deep qualitative sleep. Um, so I think it's been a good call. And then she gets so much greens in, like I said already, you know, we do a green smoothie so regularly and she's actually a big salad eater too. Yeah. So amazing. (laughs) Um, and then in the world of detox, um, let's talk about glutathione a little bit. So luckily her cysteine pathways are good and she's negative for SOD one, which is going to impact oxidative stress, but GSTP one is homozygous. 
And then GSTM3 is heterozygous, which is going to impact liver health and glutathione status. Yes. And so, you know, the, the GST1P, which is homozygous, the more, again, severe of the SNPs, that's the one that we did know going into this panel. That was the one that was within that prior genetic panel. And this is the area where we really get concerned about heavy metals and metal toxicity. Um, and so when we're looking at, um, you know, the GST1 plus the MTHFR um, on the C677T, those two as homozygous are, are the 100% reason why I will not inject a prophylactic toxin into my daughter. Um, there's just not going to be a cost to benefit and we can break down every vaccine and her, her risk to benefit association factor. And due to these two genes, it's not going to be a win. Um, you know, we still on top of avoiding vaccines for Stella are using things like topical glutathione. So this is a transdermal delivery of glutathione. I've also sensed these genes started to play with cellular antiox and, and the various delivery um, I have now a fourth client that has purchased, and I'll put a link in the show notes, um, smaller pills. Um, there's really tiny pills and it's kind of funny. They're like, I feel like a drug dealer, um, <laughs> because they're like opening their cellular antioxidant and putting each capsule into six tiny capsules okay. for their kids. I like it. Yeah. And so Stella's really into gelatin now. And so I think I'm going to play with making the smaller pills and sticking them into bites of jello um, because the tiny pills are are tiny again if you've seen cellular antiox it makes six mm-hmm. um, and cellular antiox is a larger capsule it than is. your standard capsule um, so for instance like a calm and clear capsule would probably be made into three with these tiny pills um, but they are like these small little pearls if you will and so i'm going to play with that with stella and i will report back i'm sure i'll be sharing it on instagram if it's a success um, and then the other way was just to create the habit of like doing it with nut butter. Um, but we do want her getting that N-acetylcysteine building block plus the acetylated glutathione with the conjunction of B6. That's what the cellular antiox is. Um, and that's just such a big support on the detox pathways. And unfortunately, you know, we do our best to avoid herbicides and pesticides and we, uh, you know, purchase from a CSA for our produce and otherwise organic. And we have a very clean paleo approach to her diet. But still, with all that in consideration, we live in an industrialized, dirty world. And so um, I have also made changes, as you guys may know, in her um, school where we have transitioned from bleach mm-hmm. um, to uh, the hydrogen peroxide cleansers. So you can change your toxic environment, you can change your diet, but you still likely, if you are homozygous, want to still be pro-vigilant about these pathways that that have a big hit. And especially, this is a population where you'd really watch out for anesthesia. Yeah. Um, yep. And so even in adults, if you're you know GSTP1, um, you'd really want to ensure that you do like a glutathione push, maybe an IV prior. Um, and again, um, really thinking about how to reduce the toxic exposure. Okay. And then beyond that, any other, um, hits on glutathione or anything else to bring in, in terms of supporting detox? So for adults, you know, I would say that this would definitely be an individual, especially with the NAT2 uh, heterozygous that she has going on, I would bring in a detox pack 
um, in addition, because then you're getting that cymillarin, that milk thistle seed in there. Um, that's in the, the phase one component of our detox pack. Remember, it has three ultimate detox phase two, one phase one, and then one antioxidant blend. So I think to incorporate that um, consumption of green tea. So as we mentioned earlier, one of our sponsors, Wild Foods, um, they have fantastic tea blends. That'd be a great way to get your antioxidants up and also get that catechin to support the liver function. Okay, and then I know one area that was surprising was her inflammatory pathways. Um, so I think this is an area where we can really emphasize how important the epigenome and expression of these genes is when we look at these pathways because her diet is so anti-inflammatory. She has no symptoms or inflammatory conditions, but five out of her eight inflammatory pathways are heterozygous. And one of them, the CD14, is homozygous. Yeah, and so this is where when we talked to... Oh, and also we'll link Dr. Emily Gutierrez's podcast. Uh, That's Stella's functional pediatrician. And um, she's out here in Austin through Neural Nutrition Associates. And when I reviewed this panel with her, that's where she just really not to toot my own horn, but she really commended us as parents. And she said, oh, your child, if she was not on a really tight paleo grain-free anti-inflammatory, you know, uh, wild caught fish, grass fed meats. And cause you know, she knows everything we eat and we did like a food record to send to her. She's like, that's literally what's keeping Stella's inflammation at bay. And so it's going to be important that as she grows into more autonomy in her tweens and mm-hmm. teens that you empower her with that connection of food as medicine which of course we will try our darndest to do so um and uh so it is interesting to see that she should have more allergies more immune stress um and so you know when we're looking at these pathways there's there's specific considerations and tools um you know based on each particular gene um so you know there could be consideration for instance if we're looking at like the NOS2 um, you know, like the, the myo 40 or the beetroot powder could be something that that individual would bring in as like a daily electrolyte support. Cause that's going to help with hypertension. Um, that's going to also help with that nitric oxide doing the Zach Bush movement that we do in dance class every week, right? The nitric oxide four step movement, which we can link also in the show notes, a great way to boost your nitrogen oxide synthesis, synthase pathways. Um, thinking of along the lines on, some of the other inflammatory mediators, we always would start with an omega-3. So, you know, the EPA, DHA, extra would be a fantastic tool. Uh, Stella was doing the Nordic Naturals fishies. I can link those as well for you guys. Um, and I'll put those in my Amazon store. And then um, we're now graduating her to a liquid fish oil. Um, and we may be bringing a liquid fish oil into the naturally nourished line. We're kind of testing that with Stella first. Um, but an omega-3, I think, is really important for kids, especially I think that's kind of helping to harness this whole pathway. And then if it was a symptomatic individual or an adult, we would add in that EPA, DHA extra increased dosage to like four a day. We would layer in the super turmeric likely. Um, cellular antiox would be fantastic, especially if that individual had some detox issues that we already visited. Um, and, uh, with Stella, like I said, we did add in the cellular antioxidants. She's on an omega-3 and I do layer in quercetin from the bio C plus, um, that one's really palatable. So, uh, she takes like two capsules of that a week that I just stir into a smoothie or yogurt and she doesn't notice at all. And then again, she doesn't consume industrialized oils. She doesn't consume refined sugars, processed foods. So I think that that keeps the inflammation at bay, but this could be a pathway where I'd consider the MRT test 
in an individual that's expressing inflammation so we can understand their immunological food and chemical inflammation response. Totally. And it's so good to know these tendencies now so that you can be ahead of that and be hypervigilant. If something does start to show up, you know what to do next because you've already got this strong foundation for genes. Yes. And along that line, the one the area that I was excited, I mean, interesting enough, because Brady was sitting next to me. Um, so she does have some reactivity and digestion and autoimmune activity. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned already the FUT2. So FUT2 creates a susceptibility to imbalance in the probiotic and prebiotic world. And she was heterozygous there. That can impact your fecal transferase pathways. But I will say Stella has the best bowel movements in our household. And that homegirl does two kids biotics, chews every single day. And she also has a probiotic food daily. In fact, sometimes she has two probiotic foods. And then I try to like be mindful if I know she's going to have kombucha at dinner because we're going out with friends um, and she's having yogurt for breakfast. I'll only give her one kid's Mm -hmm. biotic. (laughs) But generally speaking, um, you know, she's rock and roll in the GI world and very uh, we're very pro vigilant. She's been doing probiotics from birth. And although she was C-section, we did do vaginal inoculation and she was breastfed for at least a year. So I think that her biome is pretty well founded, especially the fact that she was tight grain free for the entire first two years of her life and pretty much 98% grain free at this juncture. Um, and that goes to the next gene I wanted to note that I was like elbowing Brady yeah. at, which was, um, <laughs> yes, the HLA genes that she was heterozygous on both. And that creates high risk for gluten-based issues. Um, and so, you know, again, my concept with children and optimal eating is that the first two years of their diet should be grain-free, um, because we really want that epithelial lining of the gut to form. And then, you know, we like, you know, she's had two birthday occasions that have not had gluten-free. So she's probably had gluten twice. And Brady gave her a bite of sourdough this year, but again, a bite. I don't think she ate even a slice. Um, and she loses desire. She kind of will be like, no, mama, too sweet for me and go play with the kids. And then a lot of parties now have gluten-free options. Um, we have gotten into a family ritual where we are doing a couple times a month, a gluten-free pizza party. Um, and we'll either use the, um, Capello's frozen and, and make that at home or the, uh, smart flour, which they use at a couple restaurants in Austin area, which is Teff and amaranth as the predominant blend. And, um, she seems to do just fine with that, but that solidified my gluten-free. And now I can be like, see Brady, if we gave her gluten, what would happen to her inflammatory pathways, knowing that she has mm-hmm. this high risk for gluten-based issues? And I think now he's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. He's not as worried about her missing out on normal. missing out in quotes, <laughs> these normal experiences. It's like, you know what she is missing out on? Inflammation. Right. You know what she is missing out on? Developmental delays. You know what she is missing out on? Oh my gosh. It's like that whole food freedom thing, right? Like what is food freedom and what is quality of life and optimal health? And those are the things we have to constantly weigh. The immediate quote unquote reward, because is it even for the delayed impact on your health? Totally. Um, And then just to round things out here, um, coagulation factors and neurological factors all looked good. So we looked, for instance, at APOE4, which is considered in Alzheimer risk. Um, We talked all about that in episode 112 um, about saturated fat and risk of Alzheimer's. But for Stella, the last concern um, were on genes that are going to impact autophagy and vitamin D. 
Yeah, so she was only heterozygous on the VDR gene, um, and she is also getting already the vitamin D K2 blend. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to have her do the blood spot. I need to do it myself first to see how much it hurts, mm. um, you know, to just kind of yeah. weigh out the cost-to-benefit trauma there um, because, again, her immune system is pretty rock and roll, and um, she uses the vitamin the vitamin D balance blend kid. Well, it's not kids. It's just the vitamin D balance blend liquid um, that she has been using for since age two um, and so for at least two plus years so I'm not really concerned about that it is sublingual which also helps with bioavailability and you know her immune system seems to be in such that her D is probably in an optimized status but with the VDR that would require supplementation for sure um, and then on her autophagy pathways she was heterozygous for ATG5 and ATG12 um, it's interesting because, you know, they recommend a 12 to 15 hour fast. Now they don't generally do that, of course, for children, but Stella is so blood sugar adapted. She's, she's definitely a fat adapted kid because she can go six plus hours middle of the day, or she can wake up at seven and not eat till 11. And she had not eaten until, you know, her cutoff at intake was probably seven fifteen the night before. <laughs> So like she does actually a 16-8 many days Mm -hmm. um, if it's a non-school day. Because if it's a non-school day, we just get wrapped up in our morning and Brady and I just make coffee with fat. And and sometimes if she doesn't ask us to eat, we just are playing and building and we'll realize like, whoa, you just did a 16-hour fast. Uh (laughs) Um, And so that shows to me that she has really good blood sugar metabolism and that her body's able to, I'm, I'm sure she's commonly in a light state of nutritional ketosis. Um, again, just because of our paleo approach to her eating, she's doing no naked carbs. Every time she has a fruit or a starchy vegetable, it's paired with a protein or fat. And, um, she doesn't have blood sugar rat, uh, jags of spikes or crashes. And that's, I think, really uncommon for her age range. I was going to say, especially with that extended fast that she's doing, I really don't see her crashing at all these days. And to be clear, parents, that is not intentional. Again, nope. it's, it's like the accident, like Sunday, lazy Sunday mornings where we're like, so we don't ever, I, I don't recommend you, you make your child fast. I do think children should, you should have your children fast at least 12 hours for sure, <laughs> which would be reasonable, right? Like 7 a.m., 7 p.m. So a 12 to 14 hour makes sense. I wouldn't really push it beyond that, but if intuitively it happens, that's testament to their blood sugar metabolism. Sure, and staying out of like the grazing mode of snacking too, I think is a big one. I think that's a huge recommendation. So if this was your child and they had homozygous, you'd really want to stick to allowing three to four hours minimum between meals and snacks so that they do get some of that autophagy function. Okay, so let's take a deep breath and... (laughs) Before we get deeper into vaccines, I just want to have a quick break for a word from our sponsor for this episode, us, Naturally Nourished Supplements. Yes. So I've dropped a lot already of what's in Stella's repertoire, um, but it's important for you guys to understand you know, why I created the Naturally Nourished Supplement line and what it stands for. And so anytime you're purchasing a product in the Naturally Nourished Supplement line, you can be confident that you are getting purity, potency, and efficacy at a value that you cannot beat. In fact, we have painstakingly reviewed all of the vendors on the market, and we ensure that 
our pricing is at least 3% under the standard retail pricing. And then we take this discount even further when we provide an additional 10% off of subscriptions and 12% off of bundles. And bundles are curated by Becky and myself to provide you based on your area of greatest focus, the three or four most powerful formulas to have greatest efficacy. So supplements can be powerful tools, and when they're provided under the guidance of functional medicine practitioners in a potent effective delivery, they can really deliver profound health benefits. All of the supplements in our line are pharmaceutical grade, meaning that they require someone with a medical license to develop and order. And this means that you're going to get potency or a powerful dose per serving. Many times what you cannot get over the counter, even at natural foods and supplement stores. And I would highlight based on today's episode, our kids bundle for sure. We've been talking a lot about Stella's supplement game. So that does contain the multi-avail kids, the kids biotic and the grass-fed whey, which we really haven't touched on too much, but would be a great recommendation for, um, supporting and reducing inflammation in the body for sure. As well as the GST one, right? Grass-fed whey is one of the greatest ways to boost up glutathione endogenous or the building of glutathione in the body. So I think that that would be a fantastic tool there as well as the gut support, like you mentioned, and the immunoglobulin support because it's non-denatured. It's important to note also that all of our products are going to be tested. So they're third-party tested for potency and purity. And this includes screening for mold, toxic metals, contaminants. So we're ensuring both that the active ingredients listed and stated are actually there. And this includes even testing of the colony forming units in their live active form per ID guarantee in our probiotics. So our supplements are pure, tested, and then we ensure that they're synergistic. So like the Relax and Regulate, providing two stones for Stella with the glycine in that GABA pathway and the inositol in the MAO pathway. And then we even see the magnesium benefiting down in the world of inflammation. Um, so go on over to AllieMillerRD.com. If you have not yet tried the Naturally Nourished Supplement line, definitely take our quiz, which you can go and check out in the Learn tab. And we also have protocols that we continue to develop. So for those of you that are nervous about cold and flu season, definitely check out our immune protocol, which includes food as medicine, lifestyle, and supplement strategy. I think based on today's episode, we probably need a vaccine protocol for what we're about to get into if you have to get a vaccine or get a flu shot or something like that. Um, but let's let's open <laughs> Pandora's box and let's talk about you know why you tested Stella's genetics now, um, and especially you know getting into concerns of medical autonomy with mandates and the pandemic. So first, let's just discuss your perspective on vaccines a little bit more thoroughly, and then we can go into perspective in this season. Sure. So as uh, Dr. Christian Northrup discussed, uh, I think very mind-openingly in the episode that we did with her, um, it's important to acknowledge that the vaccine industry is a for-profit industry and that even the CDC or the Center for Disease Control owns patents, which would create monetization or financial gain in distribution of vaccines. Um, Also, the vaccine schedule, no vaccine itself has ever been tested based on a inert placebo. So all vaccines are tested um, 
never on a placebo-based environment. So we can't really look at a double-blind randomized controlled trial. And we've never tested vaccines in conjunction when given multiple injections of multiple vaccines in one appointment and at children, babies, infants of X said birth weight. So when we just look at the volume alone from 1983 to 2020, we can see a substantial increase in the volume of vaccines that are administered now in the schedule for 2020. And this is important to consider when we look at 1986, when Congress passed the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, this created a um, protection for vaccine makers from all liability, including death. So there's a zero liability, and at that time, the vaccine schedule already quadrupled, and it's even higher now. I didn't tally this up, Becky, but what are we looking at here? A lot. A lot. Like, um, we are the experiment, mm-hmm, <laughs> is what you're mm-hmm, saying. Mm-hmm. So it looks like 11 vaccines administered in 1983 from ages two months through age 18, 11. Um, And just for sake of a, maybe Becky can count it while I'm (laughs) ranting on something else. Um, But I always stand by, you know, considering how the immune system works, right? And we're looking at, as we've discussed in prior episodes, the innate and acquired immune system. And when we're considering the role of vaccines, it's to create antibodies or to introduce a said disease to the body so that the body can build up immunity against it. So if the body was exposed to that said disease, it would know how to fight it. So basically the concept of vaccination is to teach the body to build immune compounds to combat or fight said disease. Did you do a tally? 51, if my count is correct. Okay. That's a lot. A lot. Um, right. So I always stand with, it's, it's better to strengthen the immune system. You know, I don't go into the germ theory. I take the terrain theory of, you know, viruses are inert and require a host to live and thrive. Um, and when we're looking at the immune system, Um, It's important to think of how we can strengthen from the root, um, how we can ensure that the surveillance system, that's how we think of the immune system, is active and employed, um, and so that it can identify any pathogen. Because a couple of the concerns when we look at vaccines is that A, especially viruses, can mutate, um, so they can... uh, shape shift, if you will, (laughs) thinking of Maui and Moana, Um, but viruses can mutate. So that's where we see, you know, flu vaccines, often they'll use like a quadrivalent where they're using four different strains and they're really kind of like rolling the dice and sometimes they're 40% effective, right? Um, And so when we're looking at a vaccine in this said season, we still haven't even, I believe to my knowledge, identified clearly right? A a lab confirmation of of the COVID-19 virus. Um, They haven't been able to isolate it to my knowledge. Yeah. Right. So if if it hasn't been isolated, it's pretty tricky of how we're trying to vaccinate against it. Um, And it's important to understand how all vaccines work and, and the cost of benefit risks. So all vaccines work again by training the immune system to recognize and combat pathogens. So if you can't, um, you know, 
if you can't isolate it, how can you train the immune system to recognize uh-huh. it? Uh-huh. That's a question uh-huh. I'm scratching my head about. <laughs> but generally speaking, vaccines work against viruses or bacteria. To do so, certain molecules from the pathogen have to be introduced into the body to trigger an immune response. And these molecules are called antigens, okay? And so these antigens are present on all bacteria and virus, and the antigens are delivered with an adjuvant. And the adjuvant is a pharmacological or immunological agent that modifies the effect of other agents. Adjuvants are always added to a vaccine to boost or shock, if you will, whatever word you want to use, the immune response to produce more antibodies to the said desired antigen. And the more antibodies produced, that should create more longer lasting immunity and thus minimize the dose of antigen needed. As we've heard in most research studies with the COVID vaccine development, which this is not going to get specific on that. There's just too many still horses in the race right Mm -hmm. now. But many of the research is showing significant side effects as well as um, lack of efficacy with a single dose. Sure. So looking like like multiple doses needed to create any, you know, impressive load of antigen. Yeah. Pretty frightening and and you know, talk of this being out by early next year. I just don't see how that is possible to have it be a safe <laughs> option. Well, and then there's the whole question of, of the MR, of, of the different form and mechanism of, again, this said vaccine. But let's just talk a little general. So sure. when we're worried about adjuvants and what they can do in the body, we're worried about gut permeability, autoimmune reactions, because when you shock the immune system, it creates high susceptibility to autoimmune flare. Um, And we're looking at neurological conditions, especially we've seen episodes of seizure onset within 12 hours, 24 Mm -hmm. hours, two hours, or immediate following vaccination in doctor's offices, speech um, delays, or, or children that were showing development all of a sudden just go mute. Um, And so the neurological concerns, and again, what is not tested, is the impact of an intramuscular injection of aluminum or mercury. So we've done metal testing as a um, delivery through the mouth, oral, per oral, but we have not looked at an actual injectable metal and what that does to the blood brain barrier and gut blood barrier and i think that if we're talking quote unquote with air quotes science that that would be a really important thing to investigate especially again multiple doses of various compounds given in a cocktail at once this puts risk of the individual in their microbiome in their detoxification pathways especially again if mthfr and gst1 um, again this can create if someone's more immune compromised higher susceptibility to autoimmune flare and most definitely can drive down nutrients of demand so there are yes things we can do to try to uh, support the demand of the stressor to the system vitamin c glutathione NAC. Um, but we do see that there are often acute side effects to vaccination and we do not want to treat these with tylenol or something that's going to further um suppress the glutathione stores in the body and unfortunately that still is often a recommendation that if your child gets a fever following vaccination to give them Tylenol and that would be something that would further hinder their detox pathways making the neurological risk factor even greater. Done all the handouts I've gotten from our pediatrician so far to give Tylenol after a vaccine. And, you know, it's like something like varicella, um, you know, chickenpox or vaccine, which neither Becky nor I had. Uh, did you have the chickenpox, Becky? 
I think I had it twice. <laughs> so <laughs> if that's possible, I had like a very mild case and then had it like very severely. But my brother was vaccinated and he got jealous that I had chicken pox and drew red dots all over himself. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's too funny. Um, well, you know, in, in, in our era prior, you know, that was very normal to sure. just have like chicken pox parties, work the, yep. the herd immunity based on exposure. And again, mortality risk factor being very slow, keeping the kiddos hydrated and comfortable is the big thing with um, pox when we're looking at that. Um, but now it's become completely normalized, like not mm-hmm. even optional. It's just in the CDC right. um, mandatory guidelines. And, and we even see now the flu that's what was adding up all those tallies in kiddos that the flu shot is in the cdc not optional but in the schedule Mm -hmm. and again flu shots been expressed at 40 percent efficacy so these tiny bodies are getting the same dosages often of adults of these compounds that can really stress their poor developing bodies yeah and that rate of increase like you said is kind of insane yeah, and, and that paired with legal immunity. So, mm-hmm. and, and not immunity in the immune system. I mean, <laughs> I mean ensuring that there is no um, financial ramifications mm-hmm. um, in vaccine injury. So it does take two years for the gut to completely develop the integrity of the gut lining. And so I really say that it, uh, my big recommendation would be that everyone ensure that they don't vaccinate before age one, um, unless your child has to be out of your direct control and care, and you don't feel safe about the the daycare environment, and you've weighed out with your healthcare practitioner the risk association of the said conditions and looked at research studies in daycare population and risk factors. Um, but I would at least wait minimum three months, twenty pounds. Um, 20 pounds should really be about 10 months would be the, 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 you know, so everything good, good, better, best wait at least until three months, maybe then wait until 20 pounds in 10 months, maybe wait until a year, maybe ensure you go that full two years for that gut integrity. Um, and during that window, you can most definitely look into genetic testing to really understand because before age one, your T helper one and T helper two cells are still changing. And so the actual like validation of that antigen antibody relationship may very well change Mm. because the body is is you know too small to even create a influential defense and i think a good resource for parents looking to advocate and just kind of dive deeper would be dr sears's books both the vaccine book and the vaccine friendly plan which i'm personally working my way through and then you can also ask when you go in for those early appointments like i did for the actual manufacturer you can ask for the vaccine insert so you can read it with your own eyes what's in it and what the side effects are and you know if the practitioner that you are going to has not personally read it and can't answer questions about it i think it's time to shop and go somewhere else yes anything shocking that you saw becky and any of the inserts i haven't gotten down the rabbit hole yet because i'm just i'm waiting to do noah's genetics first yeah Um, and then go into that four-month appointment, which is what the actual... So there's um, nurse practitioners and then a pediatrician. My four-month is with the actual practitioner. And prior to that, I'll have my whole kind of army of defense if I need it. Um, and we'll have had an appointment with Dr. Emily as well, just to have an outside person review his genetics. Yeah. And so, you know, if Stella was heterozygous, it's possible I'd have a different perspective on the GST1 and the MTHFR if she was heterozygous instead of homozygous on both of those. Um, the things you can consider are, you know, vitamin C, 
two to three grams. Obviously, it's going to depend on the, if it's a baby <laughs> or if it's a toddler um, based on weight. Um, like I said, uh, glutathione can be really fantastic support. Um, doubling down on probiotics, using GI lining support because that gut lining um, is going to prevent that aluminum passing through the blood-brain barrier. Um, and if there is a cytokine storm or some form of inflammatory response that drives fever and aches, um, you can always use detox packs as an adult. Um, you can always use super turmeric also as a supporter because that's actually aiding in endogenous glutathione production as opposed to suppressing glutathione like the Tylenol will do. Um, omega-3 fatty acids can be increased as well. Um, all of these are things to consider. But when we're looking at um, vaccine cost of benefit, we have to always evaluate the risk factor. Um, we have to look at exposure plus susceptibility to determine if disease is possible. So I think before we go any further, just the point that we need to really hit home, especially as a, a new mama, you know, we think of vaccines and are kind of sold this messaging that they are inert or you know protective and at least not harmful but the reality is that they can be extremely harmful yes and i think that that's where during this time especially with mandates and that's kind of been my messaging along the vein with masking all along is right there's really not strong evidence and it was medical consensus up through march 2020 that masks were not effective to prevent the spread of respiratory virus yet here we are using air quotes with the word science and and mandating and Again, something like that is not net neutral. It's net harmful. We're seeing increased pneumonia cases. We're seeing increased staph infections. We're seeing increased strep throat. We're seeing styes in people's eyes. When you interfere with how the body functions and you step away from supporting the innate and acquired immune system and how the body works and you start to prophylactically inject compounds that have preservatives and metallic or adjuvant compounds to disrupt the neurological and immunological system to create the antigen antibody response that there is downstream effects of this and this influences again neurological health detox pathways immune system and we've actually even seen in studies that there has been increased trends with children that are vaccinated versus non in behavioral as well as allergic rhinitis which is essentially runny nose we've seen 30 plus times greater allergic rhinitis with children that stick to the CDC schedule of vaccinations. We've seen five times increased learning disabilities um, and we're seeing more autoimmune conditions. And although I haven't seen published literature, I know that cancer is the number three driver of mortality in children. And so when we're thinking about, again, the idea that we have not tested a toxin as an intermuscular injection, we've only tested it per oral, I think that we really are doing a disservice, especially when we're taking out the liability factor from the manufacturers. Yes, it's some heavy stuff. And I think a good resource for mamas who want to dig a little bit deeper into this would be Robert F. Kennedy and the Children Health Defense Fund. He's got tons and tons of research on his website about the negative impact of vaccines. Yes, and so it always comes down to the exposure plus susceptibility equals disease. Exposure alone does not equal disease. 
if you can support the individual's immune system. And even with the exposure plus susceptibility, then you have to question yourself, are you in a third world country with zero access to treatment or do you have access to treatment? So A, if my child's exposed, and I think we should talk about the tetanus thing now, right? Yeah. This is the time we should talk about tetanus. Let's talk about it, Um, because I think that's a really real world example of you going through this process as a mama. Yeah, so um, Stella, like I said, has zero vaccines, and so typically tetanus, um, you know, would have been provided, and she would even have a booster. Um, They start with DTaP at two months, four months six months um and so she's she's behind many doses oh and then at 15 to 18 months and then there's got to be another one and at four years mm-hmm. um so is that six that she's behind maybe a lot. Um, <laughs> a lot of doses of things that she doesn't need in her body apparently because you know tetanus is a bacteria that is soil based and um uh, she did, uh, she was running around last week. She, I told her that she needed to keep her shoes and socks on. I got distracted and she had her shoes and socks off and a wood chip, like, like a dagger wood chip, um, a mean old wood chip got wedged, um, in the middle of the bottom of her foot in that really tender tissue, you know, not the pad of her, um, ball of her foot or her heel, you know, right in the middle by the arch. And, uh, the dagger wood chip went in almost a full inch. Like it was at least two thirds, three quarters of an inch. And so, you know, I had to like set her on the bench and pull it out and there was blood and all the things. And so I'm like, okay, socks on for compression. We're going to CVS because we have to, I'm not sure what we have at home and we have to treat this as if it's an infection. We have to kind of triage this wound (laughs) um, within the hour. And so again, one, I know that Stella's immune system is strong. I know that she's regularly on a probiotic. I know that her vitamin D status is optimized. So if right away impact into her bloodstream was an infectious bacteria, right away her immune system is at least armed and knows what to do. The toll-like receptors are functioning in her gut based on her probiotic status. The vitamin D function is working in multiple mechanisms of immunological health. And so anyway, we went and got hydrogen peroxide for wound rinse, followed by iodine. Um, I'll link all these products as well as your like emergency wound care because iodine um, is a fantastic antibacterial. Um, And so we did iodine after the hydrogen peroxide rinse. And then we did do Neosporin, which like generally I'm more like if it's a scrape, if it's a whatnot, I'm generally going to use like raw and filtered honey, coconut oil. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big, you know, antibacterial salve, but in this scenario, I'm like, oh yeah, we're like busting the big guns. We're going topical antibiotic as well. Um, And so we did those three things and we changed it like every 12 hours for three days and she's completely fine. I felt around her heel, felt around the ball of her foot constantly to see if there was any neurological um, spread of pain, um, if she was walking differently on her foot. And the interesting thing is if she was, let's say, infected with tetanus, A, we still have more tools that we didn't implement, like dosing higher amounts of berberine for her, um, dosing other antimicrobial natural components, or if need be, she would go on an antibiotic. Cost to benefit, the influence of an antibiotic versus six different prophylactic injections I choose every single day. Period. The end. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. And she's running around a few days later. She's totally fine. Yesterday running, you know, equal yeah. pressure on both feet, doing fine. So again, we have to think through what are you vaccinating for? What's the mechanism of action of that said disease or illness? Is it treatable in modernized medicine? Or is this a disease that's killing people in third world countries, yet we're surrendering to the business of 
pharma. And so we have to be mindful of cost to benefit. We have to be vigilant mamas. We have to think through and read the inserts and understand that you have autonomy over your household. And it's important that we take a forward stance in medical autonomy during this time because we're moving into a dark age where the word science in air quotes is being used in models and not double blind randomized clinical trials and we're suppressing studies that don't support the narrative and this is when you have to do your own deep dive work so with that said i so appreciate you guys being here and being warriors for your own households and families please take a moment to go on over and leave us a five-star review. If you aren't supporting the YouTube channel, that's another great way for you guys to support the platform of us putting out our next for y'all. Make sure you subscribe, make sure you comment, make sure you like, um, because we're all just um, dancing while we keep speaking truth in these uh, times of the modern book burn at the also, at this time, check out Naturally Nourished RD as my backup Instagram account. And um, hopefully, this has empowered you to take control of your health. And if looking for some data and actual science to support your cause, check out the GX Science panel, which we will link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.